very good afternoon. It is Niall Boylan. Um, which for the next 20 minutes or so, this is a special. We decided to do this one because we believe it's very important. And it's very important always to get answers. Before I do, I do that, I want to introduce my guest, um, Donald McIntyre, is an Irish investigative journalist who I'm sure you're all very familiar with on numerous TV shows and television exposés. Good afternoon to you, Donald. Hi, thanks for having me. Very, very grateful. Donald, let's, I just want to talk about you first. I'm going to come to the main crux of why we want to speak to you today. But I mean... I remember the first time I saw Donald McIntyre. You were a bouncer on a door in a nightclub in the UK. I can't believe you remember that, man. That's do, do you remember that? <laughs> and, I, and I said, to, and you know what? I was a big fan at the time. I don't know how long ago that was, but I was a big fan of Roger Cook. Uh, you know, the, the Cook Report, if you remember. And I was a big fan of that kind of investigative journalism and getting right in there and pretending you were somebody you weren't. So you essentially went undercover as a doorman in a nightclub. And I think there was a follow-up show where you were a fan. It was about soccer hooliganism. I remember all those shows. And I went, this guy is nuts. Like, he's crazy. I mean, half of it is that I'm Irish. But the other thing is, the rest is I'm a Kildare man. But I actually have, very rarely have a hair, my hair cut as tightly as this, except the last time when I was undercover as a bouncer and a, <laughs> and a doorman. I have to say, I wasn't the tallest doorman, but in, in that particular arena, you did become very efficient at getting people to uh, drink up quickly. But of course, I was wearing a secret camera and I was filming drug dealers and all sorts of things around me. But I would say uh, I never really wanted a fight. I remember saying to them, listen, uh, you know, drink up. You've got five minutes. And they'd be a bit Larry back. And they'd say two minutes. And I'd say, and they said, oh, man, right, I'm taking it. So I was... <laughs> I was uh, but... Um, Funny enough, I'm the last person to be served in a bar forever. Always happened. <laughs> but no, it was, they were, they were interesting days. I mean, the, the heritage, I came originally, worked in with the Vincent Brands and the Tribune, great team of journalists, yeah. you know, at, uh, there. Oh. And of course, the Irish press, evening press. Um, and I've worked uh, with, with the Sunday World. And uh, I took, a, after that, a kind of pretty standard Paths to documentaries and BBC and news, current affairs, and then World in Action, which also, uh, oddly enough, had a really strong Irish connection of journalists. And yeah. they sent me undercover initially on For Wayne's World as a uh, undercover drug dealing bouncer. And um, mm -hmm. oddly enough, that was in Nottingham. And I remember I got death threats after that, and I was interviewed on the sofa by Eamon Holmes and Anthea, Anthea Turner. And that shows you how long, how long ago it was. Yes. Now, so, by the way, what year, what year was that? I'm trying to remember from my own age. What year was that? 1995, 1996. I remember Anthea and Eamon were not getting on. And to be honest, there was likely to be a death threat between those two as there was for <laughs> of the drug dealers I ever... <laughs> and did you, did you ever worry for your own safety when you were a bouncer or when you were with those soccer hooligans, uh, hooligans who were kind of an organised group who were essentially going to football matches to cause fights and you kind of went in and became one of them? Were you ever concerned that at some point someone was going to spot the camera? Because in those days, technology wasn't as good and as small as it is nowadays. And maybe it was a little bit bulkier. I don't know if they could spot the camera. Were you ever afraid that we're going to, you know, figure you out. I think it was, I mean, uh, on the phrase often given of, of the Irish is unseasonably optimistic. So I always thought there'd be always good, a good outcome. And uh, I think if, if you're of that mindset, then you're likely to yeah. come out on the right side. At the same time, is we were pretty uh, well prepared, but the cameras were bulky. And I remember I had to, they were so bulky, you'd have them under your, you know, strapped to your chest or under your arm. I remember I used to smoke and to give people, you know, and had this wide arcing kind of 
cigarette smoking arc like my mom <laughs> would smoke like some Parisian uh, 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 you know lady real wide arc so you keep you naturally have a wide arc so people wouldn't get too close to you but I remember then when it, the program was broadcast people kept writing to the BBC and say that bloke smokes like a uh, 16 year old <laughs> girl and I thought as good as that but there were a lot there were um, uh, there were, you know, various threats, and and uh, you, you mm. just kind of you just kind of live with it. I remember it's the, the first death threat you get. You're kind of your virgin death threat, and I remember having the most bizarre thing was that it's very primal. You suddenly think you're not going to be able to have kids. You know, I thought I'd better get myself <laughs> to a sperm bank, solve it there if anything happens, store it just there. In, just but, in uh, case, yeah. Just in case. It never happened. But, you know, I mean, the reality is I've always considered is that, you know, there are, uh, you know, the reality is the police don't have the most dangerous jobs in the world. Investigative journalists don't. I mm. think among those who are on the public front line, who genuinely uh, face uh, trouble every day are those nurses uh, in A&E on a Saturday night with the drunks, often the firemen and first responders, not necessarily the guard, the or the police. And when it comes to dangerous jobs, you know, it's the, uh, the, the probably the most dangerous job out there, apart from window cleaners, is probably the AA or, or, or motorway support services. So uh, yeah. in context, I always slightly wary of giving journalists, even though it's to my own credit uh, and, and in my own interest. That, that you know, label of having a dangerous job. You you moved yeah. more from that kind of investigative journalism, where you, know, where you submerged yourself into situations, into more exposés, and then, of course, more into criminology. And I've watched some of the great documentaries that you've done in relation to particular, you know, cold cases, et cetera, et cetera. Which, which I mean, which is your favorite? Do you prefer doing the exposés? Well, or the- I think it's. I think uh, the undercover stuff was limited, a limited lifespan. I assure you, I squeezed the life out of it. The first undercover investigation I did was in the greyhound industry like over in Ireland, as it happened, and we got twelve convictions for blooding uh, mm. and it was the most number of, of of animal cruelty convictions in any singular case and we helped change the the face of the industry at that time and that was in 1993 and then I my last undercover one was in 2005 I mean honestly I'm an on-screen reporter, undercover, over at and above ground. I squeezed 13 years of an undercover reporter out of it. So I couldn't go undercover anymore. So then it was more... No, because we all know your face at this stage. I mean, so it would be difficult, yeah. uh, Although uh, the reason why I was able to expand it for so long was because it really is whether a face is out of context. They don't really... Maybe I have a forgettable face or you can change it. But in any case, the criminology um, is kind of a continuum. You know, you, you're you're in, you're spending time in these worlds around crime and true crime, mm-hmm. and suddenly you think, well, I should really get to know more about this. But uh, uh, eminent professor, Professor David Wilson from Birmingham City University, when I did a film, he said, I'd love to use your film uh, for material for our master's students. So he brought me in as a um, you know guest lecturer and then a visiting mm. professor and then uh, as a lecturer uh, in the criminology department. And so I did that on and off for about 11 years. And it was fascinating. So it's, and I'm still, you know, when he helped me write a few uh, papers and developing papers. And I, so uh, we're very and what's, much- what is the, I, I often wonder, you know, what it is that attracts people to, you know, these crime programs, you know, 24 yeah. hours to live or, you know, these type of programs, these kind of enticing names. And it is primarily a female audience. Sorry, girls. It is primarily a female audience. When you look at the podcast, in the world, the top podcasts are criminology. What is it that excites people 
or makes people so intrigued about the most bizarre murders in the world and the most bizarre serial killers well, and deaths? I, I think I mean, it's a really fascinating question. And there's a second answer I'll add to that, which is which I think is helpful. But I think it's absolutely female's view. I think there's an obsession with the deviance, the other, uh, you know, and I think obsession with, with, with transgression, breaking the rules outside of your own metier. Most of the followers of podcasters have barely got a speeding ticket, you know, uh, uh, in terms yeah. of uh, criminology. So I think most of them are women and by and large criminals are men. And I think very few, you know, of the regular uh, criminals, the ODCs, ordinary decent criminals, they're not looking at podcasts. Some of them are looking at some of the police program. They're not looking at uh, TV programs necessarily about you know, Netflix, but some of them are looking at, uh, at some of the crime programs to find out how to evade the law. But I have found that uh, as I was working in that arena with uh, CBS Reality in the UK um, and other broadcasters, is that Although on one way, this it is pure entertainment and inf- information and entertainment. But the the debate around crime, penology, prison system, sentencing has evolved with the true crime audience. So it's not just a black and white, let them all go or hang them and flog them. It's much more sophisticated. And I think the female skew audience, the better listeners, they operate better in those kind of um, less authoritarian decision-making kind of matrices that they, you know, they understand, they listen. So I think the debate around true crime has really absolutely. elevated itself. Uh, and I found that over the last 10 years. But you're absolutely right. I think uh, it is a female-dominated market. And uh, But I've always been interested in it anyway. But, no, uh, and, but I, and I suppose it's been more exposed now, of course, with social media, with podcasting. People are hearing an awful lot more about it and they're hearing the more sinister and gory details. And I suppose there's an element of salaciousness about it as well. I mean, when you look at some of the reality TV shows, for God's sake, you have a television channel for everything nowadays. You can have a separate television channel for male and female murderers. Um, so there's so many channels. So there's so much options for people to watch these things where we wouldn't have had this before. So uh, roll on, I suppose, because it keeps everybody in a job, I suppose, reporting on these kind of things as yeah, well. And I think I think there's an element, I think there's a... Um I think in order to, I remember I was bringing a, a, a gangster to university and um, a guy called Dominic Noonan and he, uh, and people in the university objected bringing him with Professor Wilson into our criminology class. And when you start saying, listen, we can't bring criminals to meet criminology students, then, you know, you kind of miss the point, which is to try and understand crime, the etiology of it, the how and the why in order to minimize it. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Uh, we, well, look, we can't well, because we access this world. Yeah. Well, what we really wanted to talk to you today, because you've taken a very personal interest, of course, in the death, the tragic death of the 14 year old Noah Donahue back in June 2020. And you've taken a personal interest in this. And uh, according to the Sunday World and many reports, the papers more recently, you're demanding answers from the PSNI and demanding transparency. I mean, why this particular case? And, and by the way, going back a couple of years ago, I remember seeing a picture of Fiona, his mum. Uh, in the newspaper and she was on a single protest on her own I think it may have been outside a PSNI station I'm not too sure where it was but I saw the pain in her face and you could see the agony in that woman's face she just wants to know what happened to her son now there are numerous obviously stories into relation what happened to her son and um, the last sightings of him of course was on the bike as you can see there on the screen and that tied in with the CCTV at the time um, but what are the questions you're looking for answers to? And do you think it'll make a difference, you know, to the official story, I suppose, or the official outcome? 
Well, I think it's interesting in Northern Ireland. There's a very um, they have seen uh, the failures of the state from both communities. You know, the hiding of disasters, collusion, and there's a there's an innate distrust in the arms of the state in some communities, and that and they've also seen journalists and reporters and the BBC and individually and freelancers kind of fight the hard fight to uncover and expose. And, you know, we've worked with journalists who've worked on Hillsborough. We've worked with journalists who worked on Stephen Lawrence case and many other kind of major exposés where the state and the police and in terms of Hillsborough, the coroner basically, you know, have now uh, betrayed the truth over decades. And when the, when there were, hu- you know, huge tragedies outlined there. So in relation to this particular story, um, I was contacted by um, the family and uh, as I have d- been in many instances and and some I can help and some I can't and some we go off and do podcasts with if we can do. But this was a particularly difficult one. They asked me and they said they were, you know, having difficulty with the PSNI. There were very obvious errors in the police investigation, which attracted me because we're not just investigating the death of Noah, what happened, but also the investigation because the investigation and how we unpick that, we can find out mistakes to protect future Noahs and future missing children and teens in these islands. And what was clear is, in the first instance, when the 999 call came in on the Friday night, this was basically a pretty standard 14-year-old going missing. It's happened before. It was coming out of lockdown, COVID. You know, a kid being an hour and a half too late coming home um, was not unusual to the 999 operators in Porterdown who took the call. What was unusual was that he was a little vulnerable around that time, but also, you know, his mom knew him better than anybody, of course, and she said she was worried. This is out of character, of course, yeah. Out of character. And to give the police their due, because the police did lots of things right, uh, but of course they will be defined as professionals by what they did wrong and what they didn't do. And that's the way it should be, because they're paid professionals. Everybody gets things wrong, but it's a, it's the nature and how serious the implications of those things you get wrong. So to give them the credit, very quickly they were out and they, were, uh, they sent a, a car to where they thought Noah was. He wasn't there. Within 24 uh, to 36 hours, they'd identified a bicycle. He'd been seen cycling naked. Uh, locals had seen him cycle naked, but hadn't reported it. They thought it was uh, a Father's Day prank of some sort. Uh, and, and that would not be how I would react, I can tell no, you. No, not that. if you saw a child so, no. cycling naked um, on a bike. No. Uh, of course not. Uh, but uh, but to dig deeper in the wider context, in those in, in that community in, on either side, there is a reluctance to phone the police about anything. But I think in most communities, you would say in any case, they didn't. But they did relay their stories. Um, now, he went naked, abandoned his bike and fled behind uh, a series of houses and then was turned up. Um, tragically dead six six days later in a drain um, in a storm drain about yeah. 900 meters away and floating in a storm drain and uh, the coroner said that he had uh, drowned um and uh it, everything was really quick his body was found at 905 in the morning it was reviewed by an examiner on site at 12 o'clock it was the an autopsy I'm, I'm assuming then it was just death by misadventure accidental death and that well, that this, was just, well this is the narrative yeah. and of course he deserves an inquest the interesting thing was that but 
In the week when he was missing, the police were desperate to say, Pierce and I, nothing to see here, because, of course, it's a tinderbox. It's the silly season. And there were all sorts of rumours. Here's a biracial Catholic boy found dead in a uh, predominantly loyalist Protestant area. And there were concerns and rumours and all sorts of, you know, falsehoods running around on social media, you know, you know, um, fanning the flames of, of, of sectarian tension. Naturally, the police didn't want to do that. So they just said this was one track. Noah, wherever you are, come back. And they continued to look for him. The problem was, was that during that week, they became aware that actually this was a lit as unusual as it was for him to be cycling naked and found in another area of the city where he would never go. There was ex extraordinary CCTV footage of him leaving his home uh, at three o'clock in the morning, 3.30, and returning 35 minutes later. It was pouring rain. He left with his headphones and flip-flops and came back without them. So, but the police never told anyone about that. When he was missing, that that could have been a significant investigative lead. Yeah. So, so the police are, and I, and my, my frustration is that the, while he was me, while while they were he was missing, they knew there was something very unusual. So it was a little. Not only was it out of the norm because it appeared that he was cycling naked, but also that he had a, a secret trip the night before. So on that instance, you would then say, well, out of an abundance of caution, we will take all the exhibits, his clothes, which were found, his bicycle, we'll forensically test them, we'll DNA them, everything. No, they didn't. They gave the tried to give the bicycle back to the family. The bicycle, the family said, you must keep that for potential forensics they said okay they brought it into the the station there was no room in the station so they left it outside and it got soaking wet in the rain they left all the clothes in an open bag in the police station so losing all kind of evidential and forensic uh, kind of relevance so this is a starting point for whether you begin to trust the efficacy of the police and because they're not telling the truth about the secret um, uh, is it a case. Well, is it a case that they're not telling the truth, or is it a case of just not saying anything? Well, I, I mean, think because, because I suppose there is a difference, isn't there? Somewhat. Well, well, I think there's two things. If the truth is, this is just a mis as they publicly stated, and that's a very good point you make. The truth is, as they publicly state, and this isn't going to be a philosophical UCD lecture on the nature of truth, but publicly they said nothing to see here, you know, no third party, one line of inquiry, he left his home and off we're going. But then at the same time is if you're secretly or covertly investigating this secret video, then you're now beginning to say there's something much more to it than you're telling the public and telling the family. But here's the other thing is... Uh, um, if you're in a community which naturally distrusts the police and you want to build trust, you don't ha have this kind of um, uh, shadow investigation, least of all for two and a half years. And there's real implications for this because the inquest was supposed to be over earlier this year and um, a major professor of psychiatry from Oxford was given all the police paperwork and files in order to adjudicate on Noah's mental health, which could clearly be a factor in this. Yeah. And the PSNI and the coroner did not give him this information about this incredibly critical bit of information. So um, that expert... But that, that must have been... Well, that must have been awful for Fiona when she stood there at his graveside in the funeral knowing that the answer that she was going to be given, because that said she wouldn't have had the answer, and we can see her there, and the pain in her face there as well, and the grief, but knowing that the answer she was going to give him was never going to satisfy her. And, and by the way, you know, for what it's worth, I don't think 
I mean, if you lose a child, you'll never be satisfied with the answer because you will always wonder, there'll always be a why, a why, a why. So in relation to those questions that you want answered now, uh, and according to the paper the other day, you're demanding these answers yeah. from the PSNI. What are the specific answers that you are looking for? Firstly, well, you want to know, know why, why, why the CCTV hasn't been released. Well, what more information are they holding back from the family? And why are they doing this? Because if this is an ordinary misadventure, you know, troubled teenager who made his own way, no third party intervention, then why are they conducting this kind of shadow investigation? Why do they keep it away from the experts for two years? Why do they keep it away from the family? What other information? What decisions making process did they come to 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 decide that that they didn't need a public appeal to find the missing flip-flops from the night before and the missing headphones and um uh you know how did how do they come to that decision and 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 why do they just provide um the family with footage of him leaving his house and re-entering his house, but not a compendium of footage all around Omar Road, which is one of the most cameraed up places on the planet. I would and, imagine, and, and more so, and more so in Belfast. Of course, you would have cameras and everywhere. More so in Belfast. In Belfast. So there are big questions, and I, and it, it suggests to me that there is a shadow investigation. I mean, I, I and if, uh, if like there's the, a shadow investigation, yeah. as you rightly said earlier on, they allowed the evidence to become contaminated by giving back the bike and leaving the clothes in an open bag. So if there is a shadow investigation, and they thought at that particular time, well, maybe look, we'll wrap it up. It's a cold ca- or uh, wrap up the case, close the case. But in the background of their own minds, they knew there's something maybe more to this. You would imagine they would have then kept the evidence, even for their own purposes, if they were going to continue an investigation after the after the coroner had given his decision. Well, well, you would think so. Now, I don't think for one second the PSNI are bad people. I don't think for a second that the PSNI, you know, want to do any harm to anybody or set out to do a bad job. That's just not the way civil servants act. It just isn't. But I do think, like with the Gardaí, there are often kind of processes which, lazy processes Mm -hmm. and... Uh, where people fall into protocols, which kind of simply, when you put it under the microscope, doesn't stack up. And part of our investigation into their investigation is to ensure that lessons are learned to make sure that future NOAAs uh, uh, never get a decent investigation, the investigation they deserve. Because we may never know, and I think the coroner, Joe McChristen, was right about this, exactly what happened. um, And it may be misadventure, but we can certainly examine the investigation to ensure that, uh, you know, the sealing of clothes bags and, and protecting of exhibits. It, this is basic CSI, first time viewer 101 uh, is adhered to in future investigations. Well, that, that doesn't help, unfortunately, Fiona. But what may help her somewhat to close this in her own mind, although she'll never forget the losing, you know, losing a child. No parent will ever forget that. But it may help her. I suppose, to grieve over the loss of her own child if she has some answers or maybe some understanding of what happened in that very short period of time. Well, uh, there has been no no single documentary three years on on this, doc, on this case by any of the mainstream broadcasters. There's been a reluctance to jump into it because... What is, uh, why is that reluctance? Because, of course, nobody wants yeah. to accuse the PSNI of some sort of conspiracy, oh. which is certainly not the, the case. Oh, there's, um, there's no conspiracy. I mean, yeah. it's, always, it's always to use the, the F up... Uh, it's never a con- you know, I don't believe in conspiracies by and large. I think what happens like in Hillsborough, there, it was a terrible tragedy co- caused by police ineptitude. And then the police conspired with a whole bunch of organizations to hide and cover up their their failings. 
in this case, you know, I think the police haven't parked been on, very honest about their failings, but it, that doesn't help. Um, but Fiona, what we have brought in uh, and the purpose of our fundraising campaign and crowdfunding campaign, you know, some of the top investigative experts, uh, forensic psychologists, medical examiners to challenge the evidence that the coroner is listening to, to challenge the evidence from the PSNI and to give an expert outsider's view. Because as you rightfully say, the big question is why have broadcasters been reluctant? Well, they're terrified of lighting the sectarian touch paper. They're terrified of it perhaps becoming and being discovered as a sectarian crime or being caught into that maelstrom. So they'd rather wait uh, maybe four years until the inquest is over to do their investigation. But as an investigator, and as the police know, and we know, is you really got to investigate in the here and now where where, where the, the witnesses' memories and recollections are secure, where the evidence is secure. And so that's the space we're operating in. And, and, and those witnesses, the last people to see Noah when they seen him cycling on the bike naked, and you said, you know, they didn't feel that necessary to call the police at the time. I find that just unbelievable that if you've seen a child naked, that, you know, particularly if you have your own children, mm. the first thing that would come to mind is, firstly, why is, why is he doing it? Secondly, who's put him up to it? And is he being mm. forced to do it? Or is there something going on here? You And you would report it. I, I, I don't understand the logic of people saying, well, I oh, don't, yeah, we I saw don't that. understand it. And I was kind of annoyed and frustrated and 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 embarrassed for them that they didn't. And I'm sure they're a bit embarrassed themselves. And then someone took me aside and said, you have to understand these communities. They never mm. called the police about anything. Okay. And there's, because a long uh, and loyal history and between them and the police in the first place. Yeah. yeah. And that and that I think. Fundamentally, which, which goes back to the RUC rather than PSNI, I suppose, more so. Exactly. Than but yeah. this tells you that although peace, we've had peace in Northern Ireland for 30 years, that legacy of distrust, right, actually impacted upon the sighting of a young 14 year old boy who's naked because outside of the troubles, the, people would have phoned up. He would have been found. It would have been alerted. But it took. 24, 28, 36 hours for that to fully percolate through. And so when you think a society has escaped the troubles, it really hasn't. So and this is a really kind of random kind of byproduct of that and tragic byproduct. But as I say, I was shocked by that. And I think I hope that that is somehow examined also um, by the uh, the coroner. But it does show that this story paints a picture of Northern Ireland, uh, of, of distrust in the institutions, Absolutely. of distrust. Yeah you know, from witnesses and, um, and that's and, and, why... And by the way, it would yeah. be in the PSNI's best interest to be more cooperative in relation to this because, of course, what they're trying to do currently at the moment, and I know because I spent most of my time in Northern Ireland now, is they're trying to regain the trust of society mm. in general, particularly those areas that have distrusted them for so long. So it would mm. be in their interest to be more transparent and more honest in relation well, to this. Well, I agree. And Clive Driscoll, who, you know, who the Stephen Lawrence, young black kid, who, who was who the police, there was corruption and, and it was appalling investigation. And he fought hard after 13 years and got two in a celebrated case, convic two convictions in the case. And, and there were, I mean, remember the Metropolitan Police, they bugged the Lawrence family, they bugged their lawyers. It's just a shocking uh, catalogue of failures by the Metropolitan Police. But he was given the case and he solved it. And he remembered going to Baroness Lawrence, as she's now knowing, and saying, listen, there are things we can't tell you, but in due course we will do. And so 
he's working with us on this case. And he said, you know, he said to Fiona, I said, listen, if we were in your position, I would say to you, uh, there are things I can't tell you. And I'm telling you about that. And remember in due course, and you'll, you'll trust me that if you if I can tell you, I will will do. And that didn't happen in this case. And as he says, that kind of policing, negative kind of covert policing or kind of old style, mm. you know, kind of um, keeping everything close to your chest, not transparent. It breeds suspicion and not trust. Well, I, I've always said that. My mother used to always say that as well. It's not the lies that I tell you. It's the things I don't tell you. And, and that, that seems to be certainly what this case is about. It's not the lies that are being told. It's the things that are not being told or not being spoken Absolutely. about at all. Well, look, it's very interesting. How can people get involved or how can they help? I know there is a fundraiser yeah, currently they, at the moment. They just go onto the crowdfunding site and look at for the independent Noah Donoghue investigation fund and they can find it on, on obviously Facebook and anything on Twitter. They can have a look and they can decide to donate or even share or shout out for it. Um, but, you know, we do feel hugely emboldened because in just four days, We've raised um, sixty thousand, sixty-six thousand uh, sterling. You know, so it's uh, it's amazing. Okay. So well, we, we will uh, uh, when we put this up and when people are watching us down below, you will find a link. We will put the link underneath to it as well, uh, so people can donate towards the investigation because I think it's in everybody's interest and if anything at all to give some peace. Although I don't think her mind will ever be at peace to Fiona uh, Noah's mother. Uh, listen, I got to thank you very, very much. And continued success, by the way, with your own career. Uh, well, it's well, motoring no, and a real pleasure because the first time we've actually. I had a kind of face-to-face, so, no, yeah. fantastic. Thank yeah, I've spoken to you many times before, but the first time we've actually, actually seen each other. Maybe we, maybe we should stick to the radio. I don't know, maybe we have maybe, a face for it. Maybe, maybe. Uh, thank yeah. you very much indeed, uh, Donald McIntyre. Pleasure, Thanks Niall. For much appreciated. You take care. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 85 200 The Nile Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.